Welcome to the second of two programmes tracing the history and development of the Serenade. As we explored in last week's show, what started out in medieval times as courtship through song became an opportunity for large ensemble or orchestral performance in the open air by the mid-18th century to mark a grand occasion like university graduation. In the hands of Mozart, the ambition of the serenade grew immeasurably. It could now claim close affinity with the more seriously regarded symphony and other orchestral genres, while still being celebratory outdoors music. It's no coincidence that Mozart reworked his Hafner serenade into a symphony, or that he gave the soloistic movements from the post-torn serenade as a Sinfonia Concertante, a multiple instrument concerto, at his Burgtheater concert in Vienna in 1783. Thank you. 
these jewel-like compositions, including the later serenade Eine kleine Nachtmusik, actually gave rise to some of Mozart's most memorable music. The bulk of Mozart's serenades were composed between the ages of 13 and 23, while he was still living in Salzburg. A pretty common constant is the use of a solo violin, or small groups of soloists within the whole. As the 18th century approached the 19th, this more chamber-oriented style carried itself forward into chamber ensemble works. Beethoven's string trio, Opus 8, was certainly for the salon rather than the university meadows. <laughs> As a vehicle for orchestral composition, it seems Mozart's model was largely ignored by the next generation. Perhaps so-called serious composers didn't feel the need to write large outdoors music anymore. As for writing for orchestra, they were too busy throwing themselves into symphonies, the high-water mark of achievement for most 19th-century composers. The first A-rate composer to take up where Mozart had left off was Brahms, who in the 1850s wrote two orchestral serenades.
part of Brahms's first serenade for orchestra, played in that recording by the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields. Where these works set a completely new precedent for the orchestral serenade was that they were designed to be consumed by a captive audience in a concert hall. These serenades were entities in themselves rather than accompaniment to an occasion. But the essence of the Mozart model remained intact, that the serenade still existed in parallel to, and at times indivisible from, the symphony. A serenade could have the ambition of a symphony in terms of form, in terms of melodic invention and development, but at the same time it didn't always have to. It could be more playful. And because it was a less developed form overall than the symphony, the audience of the day had fewer expectations. Well, we're now going to join a workshop I gave recently with the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, which concluded by exploring what the serenade had become by the 1930s in the hands of Bohuslav Martinu. But first, to one of the great serenades of the Romantic era, the Serenade for Strings by Antonin Dvorak, written in the space of just 12 days, it seems, in May 1875. Dvorak was 33. And right from the off, we know we're in a very different world from the standard 18th century serenade. Does this sound like incidental music to be performed outdoors? The serenade has metamorphosed via Brahms's serenades in the 1850s into a fully-fledged concert hall work to be consumed in the hush of an auditorium rather than over canapes in the open air. We're dealing with a very different animal. Dvorak's opening movement is the antithesis of the traditional 18th century march opener. It's gentle in tempo and serenely delicate. Perhaps Dvorak is taking us back to the real origin of the serenade. It's simply an intimate love song. What you register immediately is that the whole fabric here is that of call and response. Again, perhaps a love song, because it features two lovers of a common mind, a common purpose. In other words, in musical terms, canons. Let me isolate one for you. And so on. Well, that use of canons, two lovers in harmony, if you like, pervades Dvorak's entire serenade. Now, let's look forward to his second theme, and he's surely nodding in the direction of the 18th century serenade. You hear dotted rhythms, which Dvorak, as it happened, loved, given a martial <coughs> impetus.
One of Dvorak's great gifts is as a spinner of melodies. Just listen to how this one rises seraphically out of its quasi-martial context. <coughs> Okay, let me talk structure for a minute. If the romantic origin of the serenade appealed to Dvorak's romantic sensibility, then so did the relative freedom it afforded in approach to form. But how very different to a symphony is this music? Look at the movements. The opening moderato we've been looking at, followed by a waltz, then a scherzo, then a slow movement, and a fast finale. Surely a symphonic structure, rather than any version of that old outdoor incidental music. But remember, by this point, the symphony was fast approaching the huge, all-encompassing Marlerian view that the symphony represented the world and must embrace everything. Bit of a tall order, you might think. So freed from its standing as incidental music, the serenade was a recognisable term for music which left the composer pretty much a blank slate. The serenade had progressed from a form which mixed symphonic structures with intervening marches and dances into a symphonic form with no expectations. Dvorak could be fleet of foot here. All the movements of this serenade, bar the last, are in a pretty simple ternary structure. That's a three-part structure where you get section A, contrasting section B, and then section A returns. So looking now to the second movement, which is a waltz, it's in minuet and trio form, so naturally ternary. You get your minuet, then you get the contrasting trio section, and then the minuet comes back. Now this music is laced with melancholy and is wistful in a way that no 18th century serenade ever could have been. Do you hear, incidentally, how rich the texture is? Dvorak divides his string orchestra into seven parts here and in a lot of other places. But what he particularly delights in is the use of the upbeat. Not just now, but and now. It gives huge energy to the line. Just picture the theme in this minuet without the upbeat. I'll add it back in. Now in the next part of this minuet, the upbeats get shorter. Dvorak still needs their energy though, so he puts accents on them to remind us. The middle section of this dance, the trio, is a license for more extreme melancholic outpouring. 
as Mozart often shows us in his late symphonies, just not in his serenades. Of course, canons are never far away. Dvorak's serenading lovers once again in perfect harmony. The wistfulness which pervades this movement is pretty extreme. Extreme enough for Dvorak to blow it all away right at the end of the movement. He does something which might have caused an audience to choke on its volivants had this been an outdoor 18th century serenade. A shocker, ladies and gentlemen, a garish major chord after a minor key movement, known incidentally as a ties de Picardy, literally a Picardy third. No one knows quite why, but it certainly kills the warm nostalgia of the movement, stone dead. In the third movement, a scherzo, Dvorak is having a joke, which is appropriate enough as scherzo is the Italian word meaning joke. And what's a unifying feature of this movement once again? Canons. curious little bridge there, you might have noticed, bringing us back into the main theme. It's almost like it's too short in some way, maybe a couple of bars too short. It deliberately wrong-foots you, in other words. Maybe it's part of Dvorak's idea of a joke. Let me just show you that little transition once again. Of course, romance isn't far away. And Dvorak can't resist writing fresh melodies. This one's marked to be played dolce, sweetly, and is a lyrical counterpoint to all the high spirits. so on. And so, whilst Dvorak is still keeping alive the serenade tradition of including dance movements, he has the freedom, because of course this is concert hall music, to introduce more subtle ideas, 
more subtle shades of contrast. Like this gorgeous episode, a new tune again in high, bright A major. An interval of three notes, a third away from the home key of this movement, F major. Now, thirds are important to this work as a whole, and I'll talk a little bit more about them a little later on. You have to admit that Dvorak's tunes are so utterly singable. Well, let's jump forward now to the coda, the end piece of this scherzo. And brilliantly, Dvorak combines the essence of his main theme in the first violins and the subsidiary theme we just played in the cellos and basses. lovely last piece of repose before the inevitable scherzo-like rush to the finish. I mentioned a little earlier this, this idea of thirds, the interval of three notes, like, for instance, between C and D. C, D, E, one, two, three. And while there are moments in movements uh, where a new section is in a key a third or above or below the home key, as we saw just now, A major out of F major, there's a bigger issue to do with thirds in this serenade as a whole. The first movement is in E major, the second a minor third lower in C-sharp minor. The scherzo is a major third higher again, then in F major. The fourth movement, a major third higher again in A major, and the finale at least starts in F-sharp minor. A logic of thirds, then, underpinning the entire structure. Now compare that, if you will, with a Mozart serenade, where some movements might be a third apart. But two movements side by side might also be just simply in the same key. There's an assumption, therefore, on Dvorak's part, because his serenade is for the concert hall, that his audience will be more focused and will follow his key structure logic a little bit more than it would have been in the case with Mozart. This was clearly a luxury that he, poor chap, couldn't afford. Now, onto the fourth movement, which is marked larghetto, which means really quite hell, quite slow. I have to say, nothing this delicate and bulgingly romantic could ever be played outdoors. This is certainly music, which is a kind of soft-etched love song. A love song, perhaps, of the small hours. There's something very late night and almost jaundiced about this high, bright A major, certainly as far as I'm concerned. And after all, serenades are night music. Dying fall. 
actually it relates to music we've already heard. Firstly, if you can recall the trio of the minuet movement. And of course, it's also close to the scherzo theme. A strong sense of unity, therefore, throughout, despite the different moods. Again, Dvorak assumes he has a captive and concentrating audience. Something Dvorak delights in here is prolonging cadences, that is, the sentence endings, prolonging the sweet agony. The home chord, now we've finally arrived, is kind of emaciated. There's no bass in it, just like the high brightness we heard at the start of the movement. And in fact, Dvorak's use of the bass in the serenade as a whole is a masterclass in restraint. He paints with it as part of an infallible sense of texture and colour. Like, for instance, at the very end of this movement. Just listen to how the bass underpins in the closing bars and then deliciously evaporates. With the finale of Dvorak's serenade, he takes us back to the spirit of his scherzo. It's jokey in that it starts and stops a bit before it gets going. Also, the call and response of the cannon is once again alive and well. Once again, as you can hear, the energy is in the upbeats. Well, this movement's in rondo form, the only movement not to be in ternary form. So rondo form, where the theme, essentially, the one theme, comes round and round again and again, <coughs> just like in many of Mozart's symphonic last movements. And so, with the energised upbeats, use of canon, dotted rhythms, da-da-da-da-da, which start to proliferate, Dvorak is in the business of bringing all hallmarks of his serenade back together, exactly as you might expect in the last movement of a symphony. But... It's highly sophisticated in the context of a serenade. While Mozart, in his day, had brought some symphonic elements into his serenades, Dvorak could go much further. For instance, re-quoting his slow movement theme here with a pithy detail from the finale theme over the top. Then, just before the end, he quotes from his first movement, a sense of coming full circle, and maybe just a nod in the direction of the 18th century serenade tradition, where the march you started with came back at the end. 
Well, I have with me the strings of the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, led by Nick Whiting, and together with them we'll now perform Dvorak's Serenade for Strings. I was conducting the strings of the BBC National Orchestra of Wales in that performance of Dvorak's Serenade. Well, now the orchestra have morphed into a chamber ensemble, complete with winds and brass, as we fast forward about 55 years to explore a serenade by another composer from what we now call the Czech Republic, Bohuslav Martinu, a work written like Dvořák's in a short space of time, in fact, between November and December 1930. Now, ironically, the 20th century serenade bears a closer affinity to Mozart and the 18th century in some ways. For a start, this piece is in D major, the ultimate outdoorsy serenade key. Also, the movements are short, but also because this is a neoclassical work, neoclassicism being a license in a way to explore the art of the past. If you think about it, 19th century composers only really looked forwards with neoclassicism, however, in the early 20th century, composers afforded themselves the luxury of looking back, albeit with defiantly 20th century eyes. Well, let me play the theme of Martinu's first movement in isolation. Well, in essence, you could say that sounds almost Baroque, doesn't it? Full of bright energy. Well, this piece is neo-Baroque, as well as neoclassical in a way, using solo violins plus solo winds to suggest the solo group you find in the Baroque concerto grosso, the concertino, backed up by everyone else, the ripieno. So we could almost be in the mid-18th century, but not when I add in the other instruments. Packed to the brim, then, from the off, with what you might call wrong note harmonies. This may be in D major, like those 18th century Salzburg serenades, but it's hardly background music. Well, clearly what this 20th century serenade has in common with its 18th century counterpart, no question, is that the overall mood is light and the structures are simple. The middle section of this first movement, which is in ternary form again, A, then B, then A, this middle section is only really a variation on the main theme. A set of four rising notes, remember? And so the oboes take up the idea in this middle section with harmonic spice, courtesy of the bassoon, and the lower strings. There is truly a sense of Mozartian concision in this work. Everything in this movement stemming from that initial rising scale. (laughs) 
Now, if you know any of Stravinsky's neoclassical works, take Pulcinella, for example, and incidentally, you can download our analysis and exploration of the Pulcinella suite of Stravinsky just by going to the Discovering Music website. Now, if you know any of these Stravinsky neoclassical works, as I say, you'll hear how similar Martinu's approach actually is. And this second movement we explore now has exactly that flavour. Sinewy bassoon, chromatic, turning in and around itself, a bit like a slow-motion dodgem car. And above that, the flutes and violin have a melody which again feels curiously baroque, and the clarinet provides a kind of glue in between. Beautiful use of the wind chorus, summoning up the spirit, if not exactly the style, of the 18th century harmony band. You may know that a harmony band was usually groups of wind instruments in the 18th century who went around essentially playing the famous or popular operatic arias of the day. It's like you put in a penny and out came a tune, like a kind of human jukebox. On to the third movement of Martinu's Serenade, and it is a bit like a scherzo, even though it's not actually called as such. It is, though, fast and jokey. It's also neo-baroque, the flute which begins it is not unlike the famous bedinery in J.S. Bach's orchestral suite, number five. Here, a bit like a bedinery on acid. you can hear how the music is in sequences. The flute was in F minor originally, then the oboe, the corresponding music, in G minor. Something of the call and response, perhaps, of the lovers in the ancient serenade here. And as it continues, the offbeat strings become almost jivey. Like Stravinsky, Martinu had a healthy appetite for jazz. <laughs> There's a strong connection between the 18th century with its march at the beginning, march in the end quality, and Martinu's serenade. His first and last movements are both allegro, in other words, more or less at the same speed. Just to remind you of the opening movement, here's the start of it in the flute. So you've got the upwardly mobile figure to begin that, and then you notice those kind of gyrating semitones. Well, that's exactly the idea that begins this last movement. Now, what comes out of that? Essentially, a blues scale. 
As you can hear there, all those notes, all the ingredients of an essential blues scale, we now play it in context and at tempo. winds are back again in sequence with the same music they played in bar one but now of course in a different key now I was speaking earlier of wrong note harmony of notes that don't necessarily fit together well have a listen to this we'll stop directly on the dissonance ouch you can tell that Martin who spent some time working with Dada artists in Paris can't you A little later, there's a glorious coming together of the gyrating semitones and total wrong note harmony. But despite the quantity of detail, it's so delicate and transparent. Martinus' use of colour is superb. The delicacy of the sound world in this work almost makes it sound like music of a French composer. Well, the fact is that Martinou studied with a French composer by the name of Albert Roussel, and in fact, Martinou dedicated this serenade to him. We'll put that on one side. Let's face it, the energy of this music is palpable, light and bright, just as the Salzburg serenades generally were. So, we ask ourselves, where had the serenade arrived by the early 20th century? It had clearly metamorphosed from ear-grabbing, but essentially incidental music, to brighten up any outdoor occasion in the late 18th century, through to an opportunity for 19th century composers to write more serious concert hall pieces, music to be consumed on its own terms through into the 20th century, a situation where the traditions could be alluded to, a natural thing, of course, for a neoclassical composer in particular, but explored absolutely with the benefit of hindsight. The view which has come to prevail now is that rules are made to be broken, to the extent that the meaning of the name serenade is now so loose that it can suggest a very wide range of possibilities. But, ladies and gentlemen, there's no doubt that all serenades, from the early 18th century ones to those closer to our own times, have one primary purpose to entertain. So now together with the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, we will perform Martinou's Serenade for Chamber Orchestra. <laughs> 